And then, there's the end. The old lot of us rounded up and stood on that platform on Mork's mantle. A great crowd of people before us. No cover from that boiling sun. I remember the quiet most, looking into all those faces and being met with nothing. Everything and everyone waited. Except for one single bird. A heron, I think. I watched it for a while soaring overhead. A thing so ungainly on foot, so graceful as it hovered in that hot air. I thought then that if this was the last thing my eyes beheld, then that wouldn't be the worst. Then, it cried out, and as if in sync with it, the drums began to beat, every foot shaking across the square, echoing off the tall buildings that enclosed it. The drums' beats stirred the crowd, like water rushing into a boat's punctured hull. their silence was broken, a narrow stream of murmurings first and then a torrent of cries and shouts. I remember trying to get a sense of their divided motives. Was their screamed hatred directed at us or our jailers? Is the woman scuffling with the guards trying to get us free, or does she want our blood? Cheering, arguing, weeping and pleading, there was only one thing uniting that crowd. No matter whose side they were on, they were here to see our deaths, our executions. As we stood choking on our bismuth-threaded nooses, there, at the front of the stage, stood a minister, pontificating, reading out a list of our crimes to the crowd. Embellished, turned scandalous and repulsive through her captor's lens. But to be fair to him, most of it was rooted in the truth. Sedition, rioting, vandalism, petty and serious, treason. Pushed together in that heat, listening to all that, the crowd got more and more raucous. Some maybe's lesson formed into a huddle at the back, crying injustice at every word. I think even that minister could sense the mood turning. They uttered a final sentence, and then their words stopped. The drums stopped. The crowd's roaring stopped. And then the world dropped. And that is where it all ended. Honest. Welcome to these Flimsy Rituals, an actual play podcast focused on telling small stories in big worlds. Joining me today are Fryn Henderson. Hi, I'm Thryn, and you can find me on Twitter at Thryn. Elizabeth Simones. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. You can find me on Twitter at Games. Steve Martin. Hello, I'm Steve, and I'm on Twitter at purple underscore Steve. And Ryan Evans. Hi, I'm Ryan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at brainxray. And I'm your host, Adam Dixon. 
You can find me on Twitter at @tdixon, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Flimsy Rituals. So this is the start of the main arc of our Embrace season, and the start of our game of Blades in the Dark by John Harper, and published by Evil Hat Productions. So at the time of release, we have a couple of worldbuilding episodes for Embrace in our main feed, where we played a game of Everest Pipkin's Excellent The Ground Itself. We played a game set in one of Embrace's districts, kind of exploring what life is like within the city. You can probably go back and listen to them now, but you don't have to. We'll do our best to kind of explain things as we go along, and I don't think there'll be much introduced in those two episodes that you'll need to know up front. Also, before we start playing, I wanted to cover a few things. Firstly, while Embrace is a totally standalone campaign and season, it's set in the same world as our first campaign, Tiding. We've done our best to kind of separate it from that campaign, so it's separated by geography and time. It's in a city that we've not visited before, we've not seen it before on screen, and it takes place 20 to 25 years before the events of that campaign, so it's kind of like a prequel. There'll be a couple of overlaps with Tiding, some characters and factions and themes, but when we introduce something, when we introduce a character or a concept, we'll do our best to introduce it to new listeners and describe our world and the people in it so it all makes sense for everyone that's listening. Speaking of which, I thought we'd start by quickly going over our world and also embrace the city we've created. So our setting is called Rhine, the world is called Rhine, and there are a few key pillars to the world. First up, are the remnants. They are titans that shape the world around them. They're strange god husks that are ruined and broken and falling apart, and each of them is tied to a concept. They might be tied to love or faith or preservation or shock or fire, and they shape the area around them accordingly, creating unique and strange landscapes. Importantly, they're split in two. There are the vacants, which are remnants that are purely physical, which might take the form of like faces in mountains, snakes of sand, or great plodding quadrupeds. And there are the echoes formed of spirit, which might take the form of a blanket of fog, the whisper of wind, or a figure shaped out of starlight. Speaking of spirit, spirit is a real thing in the world. It means that ghosts exist in the world, and unlike those remnants, importantly, humans have both a physical and spiritual form. Lastly, humans are broad. They're shaped by the world around them, and they're shaped by remnants a little bit and the territories that they live in. The world's definition of what is considered human is much wider than our own. People can have gills or horns or wings, they might photosynthesize, they might have extra limbs or crystalline skin. I think it's important for our world that like none of that is looked upon as like weird or different, it's just the way humans are. So on to Embrace. Embrace is the largest city we've seen in this world, and also the most advanced. It sits on an island at the confluence of two great rivers. It's a city made unique by the fact that no remnant rules it. Nearly a millennia ago, the people of Embrace turned against their remnants. Kadroya, an echo of labyrinths and direction, and Rodella, a vacant of dawn and renewal. They struck them down and formed their city upon their corpses. Kadroya's labyrinth turned into the cut, a strange bismuth maze that runs under and through the city, 
its whirlpool turns to a directionless royal that takes great expertise to navigate. Rodella's great salamander body lies as bones throughout the city. People make leather from its flesh's seemingly constant regrowth. As we begin our campaign, Embrace is a city in turmoil. It's a city technologically and culturally somewhere around the Renaissance or Enlightenment at the start of its own industrial revolution. Factories are springing up, new technologies are changing the city, machines are replacing skilled trades. This rapid change and the city's outdated governance is fueling revolution. This season, our aim is to tell that revolution story and to play to find out what happens. So, let's get started. We join your world, the group of radicals, on the eve of your most ambitious score yet. A few days ago, your contact, Nilcat, who is a member of a group of revolutionaries known as the Ginnels, gave you a job. He told you that the tenders of the Dawn's Embers, the faction of remnant killers known as the Jackals that we've seen on screen before, are moving a weapon across the city. They have been talking about it for a few weeks, and tonight is the night when they're making their move. The plan is to move it into the People's Ward of Atrium, where there is an entrance into the cut, and once it's there, they'll hand it over to the Umbral Provenders, and they'll sneak it across the city. You four have been hired to take that weapon for the revolution. So normally, when we play Blades in the Dark, we'll spend a bit of time gathering information and exploring the different ways that you could take on a score. We'd do a little bit of free play, we'd give you some time to kind of work out what you want to do. In this case, I'm kind of using this first score as a chance for you lot to show off. So I kind of just want you to tell me what you're doing, and I'm just going to assume that that's the best possible way you could have tackled this problem. We'll still roll dice to see how it goes, but we'll treat it as you have been like gathering information and you have been researching the different ways you could do this. I'm treating this like the first scene of a movie where we kind of just cold cut straight into the score. So in Blades in the Dark, one of the first things we do when we kick off a score is we make an engagement roll. There are kind of six different strategies you can choose. So I just want you to tell me what you're doing and what this looks like and how you're making this score, how you're trying to take this weapon. And I'm very easy here about where this happens to. This could be you sneaking into the Jackal's headquarters to steal it before they move it. It could be you ambushing them on the road. It could be you hitting them as they make the drop-off between them and the Umbral Provenders. Does anyone have any thoughts about what you're doing, what you'd like to do? We are absolutely not breaking into the Jackal's headquarters. Nope. I am tabling that nope, immediately. No, 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 no. Well, I, in my head, can absolutely see this as like a, a carriage heist. Like it's on the okay. move and we're doing it in the street. So, so like a couple of a couple of turns before they, they're going to meet their contact. Yeah. So there are six different plans that you can choose to make your engagement. They are assault, which is to do violence to a target. Deception, which is to lure, trick, or manipulate. Stealth, which is to trespass unseen. Occult, which is engage in supernatural power. 
Social, which is negotiate, bargain, or persuade, or transport, which is carry cargo or people through danger. So I guess it's up to you here. I'm imagining this is happening within Atrium itself, right? I think that makes sense. I feel like this would probably be an all-out assault because Atrium is a lot of like narrow streets and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. And Steve, your character lives here, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. So I guess if if we've planned out a, a space where we know they'll come through somewhere very narrow. Yeah, I've got lots of friends here and I plan to use them. So normally I'd be I'd be up for doing a sneaky thing, but I've decided that my plan for this character is to take as much stress as possible by being as extra as possible. Uh, yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> so that's, that's exactly what I was planning. So this is a short run series. So go big or go home. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 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 Yeah. So I guess this could be straight out assault in like the middle of the night. I guess the other question is, do you want to be showing off your gang's strangeness? If you remember your XP, because the other option is you come out of the cut can we do both? Presumably the cut has many ways in and out, because otherwise people wouldn't use it for smuggling. Yeah, I, I think that is like the main entrance in Atrium, but there are probably other places that Steve's character would know about. Yeah, yeah. I don't think all of us could come out from the cut, but I imagine Steve's character certainly could. I'd imagine there's going to be like, there's going to be some places where you can get a cart in and other places where you kind of have to like crawl between two buildings and come out. Yes. Sort of situation. So we could come out in places that they can't go into sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. This sounds good. So what does this look like? Who is who is leading this action? I I would like to to jump in first. Yeah, I'm kind of picturing it as like Steve's character being the thing that jumps out and stops the carriage and we've all positioned ourselves around waiting for this moment. Um counterpoint. I could also be a bit of a distraction since it doesn't really matter if I get run over. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I want I want you watching over us. All right, all right. Someone who doesn't have to punch all their problems <laughs> desperately needs to keep an eye on us. Let's do uh, the Steve one. I think that's fun. Cool. What does this look like for this like first shot of the campaign? What what do we see? So there's a there's like a distortion in the air above the cart that they're they're carrying this thing on, and this like thin, pale, white-haired teenager steps out of the air, and there's like as he steps through the distortion, it's like it's like you're seeing his reflection in a broken mirror. It's, it's in all, all different pieces, and then he solidifies and just lands on the top of the cart uh, silently. Okay. So this seems like a good point to make that engagement role. Hell yeah. But before we do that, shall we introduce your character, Steve? Who are you playing? Uh, I'm playing Ash. He's a playbook called The Lurk, which is a stealthy infiltrator and burglar. Ash is sort of androgynous looking, pale, delicate featured, with slightly sort of distracted eyes and... His humanity is, he's got like marble-like skin, so it's looks solid, looks kind of polished almost, and is has like marble-like veins running across his face. And he is a former, well, I say former, current and former criminal, but just in different kind of areas. So he's 
basically used to be a runner. So he'd sort of deliver small packages across the city using rooftops and and uh, breaking through the cut to avoid notice. Am I right in thinking that Ash is one of the characters that we saw in the Ground Itself episodes? I don't think we did. It was his family. Was yeah, it? yeah, we got, we got his, his, his family. Okay, but he has the Bismuth Cube that we saw in those episodes? Yeah, so I think it was his, his sister found this Bismuth map of the city a while back. And Ash has has taken to basically studying it. He kind of sits for hours and gets lost looking at this thing. And he's the one that discovered that if you flip it over, what on one side is a map of the city has a kind of shifting map of the cut. And he uses that to find shortcuts and like hidden ways around the city. Even though the cut's constantly changing, he's able to navigate it a lot better than most people. Nice. And what stats do you have? So I've got two in survey, mm-hmm. one in finesse, two prowl, one wreck, one in attune, and one in sway. So I get the sense that he's basically good at moving around and kind of keeping an eye on his landscape. Yep, and also saying fire to things. That's that's very <laughs> And what moves did you take? Oh, yeah, this is the fun one. So I've got Ghost Veil, vale, which... In the the alert character sheet says you may shift partially into the ghost field, becoming shadowy and insubstantial for a few moments. So I know we've kind of discussed this, and because we're not like ghosts work differently to what they do in the sort of vanilla blades in the dark, we're kind of using this to represent Ash's knowledge of of the cut and being able to kind of step into doorways that nobody else can see and appear out of nowhere, basically. Yeah. There's more of a short range blink almost than a than a, a going ghosty. Yeah, and also I guess a chance to escape as well. Oh, absolutely. That's what he's mostly going to use it for. Yeah, and because you, because you gave us a uh, a bonus ability, I've got the Devil's Footsteps, which says when you push yourself, choose one of the following additional benefits: perform a feat of athletics that verges on the superhuman, maneuver to confuse your enemies so they mistakenly attack each other, which I cannot wait to play with. So your character's kind of quite athletic and. Yeah, absolutely no ability in a fight, but he can escape basically anything. And in terms of your friends, your vice, what have you chosen for those? So my my friend, my sort of positive contact is a dodger, which is like kids who kind of dig up lost things under the city. Who, yeah, it's, that's somebody I've sort of grown up with. And that's Midrip, who we saw in the in the Ground itself episode. Oh yeah, yeah, we did, of course, yeah. And my rival uh, is my aunt, Galena Nimovid, who is an humble provender, who I believe are the people that this package is going to. Yep. And she very much disapproves of uh, Ash's line of work, slash hobbies, slash general lifestyle. And I think you've said that you've had some trouble with, is it her in the past? Yeah, I mean, Ash kind of gets into trouble with a lot of people, but... Uh, because a lot of them are humble provenders, she's fairly highly ranked in that uh, organization. So a lot of the disapproval tends to get filtered through her. Yeah, and it's sort of like you bringing shame on the family sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And speaking of family, what is your vice? My vice is my family, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, Ash has a very big family and is very, very close to them. And spends a lot of time with them basically the way he relaxes is going and 
being in this kind of sea of people at home. Cool. So yeah, the way vices work in Blades is they're not necessarily vices as we'd understand them. They're instead what the character does to let loose and like let off some steam. And basically we use them when we go into like the downtime stages of the game to reduce the stress that our characters have taken during the scores. And the important thing for them is they're things the character can lose themselves in a little bit. So it's like something that can get them into trouble or that might mean that they go missing for a couple of weeks or they get wrapped up in like other obligations. So yeah, I think family's a really nice one for Ash. I mean, I'm really just making work for you because you've got to play like all 12 of my family members. The last thing I was going to say is I've given the players like a couple of extra things to start out because we're playing quite a short campaign. So I've given them an extra ability point to put into an ability that they want, and I've also given them an extra ability to start with. Okay, shall we make the engagement roll? The way dice rolling in Blades in the Dark works is generally you're going to be rolling a pool of dice and you're going to be choosing the highest dice. If your highest dice is a one to a three, you get some major consequences and complications. If it's a four to five, you get success, but you also get some like complications alongside that. If you get a six, you get a success with no complications. In terms of an engagement role, this is going to describe what sort of position the crew is in as we start this score. And the way this works is you start with one dice for sheer luck, and then basically the operation is bold or daring, so you take an extra dice of that, so that's two. Um, it does expose a vulnerability in the target, because the jackals were banished or like barred from Atrium in the world building series, so this is a place where they're vulnerable, so that's an extra dice for that, so that's uh, three dice. Can any of your friends or contact provide aid or insight to this operation? What do you think? Is, has Ash called upon anyone to help them? I think possibly the Dodgers and some, some, sort of, some of my runner friends as well are basically there as extra distraction, providing extra bodies running in, in opposite directions. So that takes you up to four dice. So the last thing is, are there any other elements we want to consider? So the thing that I'm going to say is the tenders are very high tier target. I think they're like tier five was your like tier one. So that's going to give you minus one dice. So you get to roll three dice. Is it 3d6, yeah? Yeah, 3d6. That's a five. Highest is a five. That's okay, right? It's it's better than the other one and the two. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You rolled a one, a two, and a five, which means you're in a risky position when the action starts. So let's describe this. Let's describe what is happening. So Ash comes running out of the cut and jumps onto this carriage. Right. Mm-hmm. I think as you land in the middle, the guards around it react. I think there are maybe four guards. They are wearing dull robes, but you can see the metal glinting underneath them. They're definitely armed and armoured. One of them, I don't think that they're taller than the other guards, but they definitely stand in a more like rigid, formal way. Snaps their head to look at you and draws a sword and points at you and goes, Who are you? Uh, hi. Um, that's, that's a good, a good question, actually. Um, and Ash kind of clicks his fingers, um, and a spark flies from the sort of flint and tinder between his thumb and his forefinger into his other hand, which catches fire. And then he claps his hands together, 
so that both hands are on fire, and basically dives towards this person and just like leapfrogs over their head with his hands on fire. Uh, is this you like running away as a distraction? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is, I guess, a prowl. Would this be? Yeah, this sounds like a prowl or a sway, but it's up to you. So the way rolling works for like normal actions is the player states their goal for the action. Is this to distract them? Oh, 100%. I, I want them to chase me. And also maybe to be a little bit distracted by the fact that their hair might be a little bit on fire, but I'm not aiming to cause harm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because they're like trying to blend in. They've not got like a helmet or anything on. So yeah, that's achievable. So you've stated your goal. You choose the action rating you want to roll. Yeah, I'm going prowl. Okay. And then I set the position and effect level. So position is what we got from the engagement roll, so it's risky. And this kind of determines how bad the consequences will be. So there are three different positions in the game. There's controlled, which is you act on your terms. Risky is you go head to head, you act on the fire. And desperate, which is you overreach your capabilities. You're in serious trouble. This is risky. The effect level is how effective this action is going to be. So I think this is going to be risky standard. Good, good. Alrighty. So how many dice do you get from Prowl? I get two from Prowl. Then you've got some options. You can either push yourself to give you an extra dice or effect level. You could have someone help you. Or if you wanted to, you could take a devil's bargain. I'm, I'm going to save the devil's bargains for today. And I'm going to push myself. So you add two stress to your character. And you add the extra dice, so you'll be rolling three dice. So do you remember earlier when I said when you push yourself, you get to choose one of the following additional benefits? I would like to manoeuvre to confuse my enemies so that they mistakenly attack each other. Oh, nice. Go for it. <laughs> so I'm going to set one of them on fire, get one of them to attack one of the others, and just bolt down an alleyway, basically. Yep, sounds good. That's a six. Nice. Uh, so you do it. What do you think happens? I think... I think the one who I jumped over is slightly distracted by the fact that there's fire. Mm -hmm. I think one of the others maybe kind of swings across the top of the cart with like a spear or something. And sort of there's like, I don't think it's going to cause much damage, but I think they're going to clock one of the others in a very Marx Brothers slapstick way. And Ash just bolts off down an alleyway around the nearest corner. I think the one that seems to be in charge, their hair got set on fire and they kind of have to pad it out. And like once they've done that, they, they point one of the others and goes like, after them. And one of them chases after you. There are now like three guards left here. The rest of you, what are you doing? So is the cart stopped now? Yeah, I think the cart is halted in the street. I'm kind of imagining there are maybe three Guards just kind of walking around it, just making sure that nothing bad is going to happen. And they look like they're about to get it moving again. I would like to try and clamp the cart. What do you mean by that? I am picturing four little wooden contraptions sort of halfway between a hand and a crab scuttling out <laughs> from the shadows and grabbing onto the wheels. God damn it, I really hate, I hate your character. <laughs> I love this. You love it, Steve. It's so good. So who is doing this, friend? And how are they doing it, I guess, is the interesting question. Yeah, sure. That is the question. So this is on behalf of one Ezra Graft. So I am playing a rollbook from the Aruvian rollbooks, the additional rollbooks by Johnston Metzger. 
and I'm playing as a forger, which is a maker of haunted machines. So obviously we don't have ghosts in the same way that Blades in the Dark has ghosts, so what I am doing is something kind of akin to binding. So Ezra is a mechanic, and they bind spirit into wooden machines, or mostly wooden machines anyway. And in terms of who they are, what what are they like? What do they look like? Yeah, so Ezra uses they-them pronouns. They are non-binary, like all my characters. <laughs> and they are sort of late 20s, kind of average height, quite stocky and a bit soft around the middle, but also very muscled. They do very physical work. They have broad, soft features and a huge mass of densely curled hair that they wear in a, a thick bun. The humanity is, I have down amber soaked, so as well as blood, Ezra has amber kind of soaked through their flesh, um, which is quite useful <laughs> when they get sort of nicked or cut during their work, which happens a lot. It's kind of an alternative to scar tissue. They get these veins of amber, and so their hands and face and wrists are kind of glinting in the streetlight here from a multitude of, of amber scars. That's kind of amazing. Thank you, yeah. It's very good. You can't see their features at the minute or very often because they smoke these horrible cigarettes 24-7 and there is always a wisp of thick cloud from the shoulders up for Ezra, which is partially an affectation of theirs and partially a camouflage. A camouflage for... Like tattooists practicing on their own thighs, Ezra started binding with their own spirit. Oh, nice. And they were not always very good at it. And so they kind of leak a thin wisp of spirit all the time from somewhere around the neck. Source unknown. So what stats have you taken first? I have taken two points in Tinker and Consort. So good at making and talking to people? Good at making and talking, and then one in study, one in finesse, one in skirmish, and one in attune. So like a nice mix of stuff there. Yeah, a bit of a mix of stuff, because I think their job requires them to do lots of little bits. So so let's get into the, the job and your abilities, and I guess also the thing I haven't asked is, what kind of machines do they make? Ooh, so Ezra started out working in the factories. Okay. I think their mum, Amris, worked at the fabric mills, and so Ezra was there with them basically all the time. And so in the spirit of looms, what they make now are kind of intricate wooden mechanical contraptions. <laughs> if you've ever seen, like, strand beasts, that's kind of what Ezra makes as entertainment for themselves and I think because of that work they were hired to build Embracer's first carousel. <laughs> yeah, I'm just googling like strand beasts now and they look amazing. They're horrible. I guess the important thing is that Ezra's machines don't work from wind or wind up stuff, right? I think wind up they they probably do. Okay. Wind not so much. It'll be a combination of balanced mechanism and spirit. So how does this work with your abilities? So I have an ability called Ghost in the Machine. You can make inanimate objects move on their own as if possessed by a ghost. Take one stress to do so, plus one stress for each extra feature. The object functions as a weapon. You break or damage something. You cause numerous objects to move. 
So I guess that's what you're doing now? Yeah, I went forward with these little beasties. And before we get there, what other move did you take? The other move I took is less interesting but very useful. I took Machinist. You may expend your special armour to reduce harm caused by weapons, machinery or devices. Or to push yourself when using a gadget or other piece of technology. So I'm kind of imagining Ezra as like, maybe not the most in-combat person, but definitely doing stuff in the background and... I think Ezra can throw a punch, but they're more the person you want to be holding someone firmly, rather than doing the big brawl. Okay. Do you want to go over your friend and rival, and then maybe also your vice? Yeah, sure. So uh, my friend is Scran, a pamphleteer. So they are the people kind of running the illegal newspaper trade, I guess. And my rival is Crick, who is a childhood friend turned Flint Street Napper. Ooh, nice. So I think Crick, like Ezra, has family heritage in the rushes. They grew up probably doing the same weekend schools and community activities together. Mm-hmm. And then they went and joined the Nappers. Is it is it because they joined the Nappers or I think it's because Ezra didn't. I don't think Ezra cares that Crick joined the Nappers, but I think Crick cares that Ezra did not. Okay. That makes sense. And what's your vice? <laughs> My vice is street music. I think Ezra is part of a protest band. (laughs) I love it. They play something akin to, but not quite a cello. Great. Perfect. Yes. I also want to make it known that they canonically don't button their shirts above the navel. I think it's a very important character note for me. I mean, you should have led with that, right? (laughs) I should have opened with that. I'm sorry. Thryn. Yeah, it was like the main thing. Also, all their, like arm pads and knee pads and apron for making machinery stuff is made from fish scales. Ooh. That sounds really cool. Okay, so you wanted to make these machines? Hand clamps. Hand clamps. Like move up and clamp the wagon? Yes. I specifically said scuttle. Scuttle. Okay, cool. You want them to scuttle up? Thanks, I hate it. And scuttle the wagon? Yeah, oh let's just use God. it everywhere, that's fine. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. like scuttle like a boat. That, For that fuck's works. sake. Um, are, we, are, we, are we doing puns this season? Is that is that what's happening? No, you're not, anyway. <laughs> we, we're we all are. allowed except you, You're Steve. not. God damn it. Okay, so, yeah, this sounds like Ghost in the Machine, which is you can make inanimate objects move on their own as if possessed by a ghost, take one stress to do so, and one stress for each extra feature. So that's two stress for me. Which additional one are you taking? I'm taking you cause numerous objects to move. So these are scuttling over to the wagon, and I guess you're going to need to make a roll to see how effective they are. Yep, that makes sense. Is that 1d6? Yeah, so you say what your goal is, which is to scuttle this wagon, and then you choose an action rating. So what are you using for this? This seems like a tinker. This is how good did I build these machines, right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds like tinker or wreck would make sense. And then I set position and effect. I think this is still risky because I think it's quite easy for the guards to spot these and just stand on them. I'm assuming they're fairly sizable. Yeah, I'm thinking like slightly bigger than a human hand. Yeah. And I guess this is standard effect. Did you want to take any bonus dice? Did you want to push yourself or? No, I think I'm I'm happy to just do the two. Okay. I'll make your roll. Ooh, this is going well. So that's a six. So you do it. I think these things run out. I think maybe the guards don't even notice them. 
they're distracted by their commander's hair being on fire. They're distracted by this strange kid that just jumped over them. One of them has probably got a wound in their shoulder from their like friend hitting them with a spear. And these things just kind of scuttle on and clamp the wagon in place. What does the clamping look like? Imagine like a monkey paw holding onto it. Okay. But it's got about four extra fingers. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Okay, yep, yep. The, the wagon is held in place. So you've got that secure. I guess the thing you need to do now is get the rest of the guards out of the way, the, the rest of the, the jackals. How many guards are left? Uh, there are three guards at the wagon. Okay. I've got an idea. Go ahead. So I think Ivar's going to come <laughs> wandering out of the alleyway, <laughs> heading up to one of the guards, and just says, Come on now, boys, you can't park here. Look, get this carriage moving. You cannot leave this in the middle of the street. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm after going to give you a parking ticket, all right? <laughs> the parking tickets exist in Embrace. <laughs> they do now. He's the sheriff of wagons. <laughs> I, I I think we're gonna need to know who Ivar is here. I don't know. I think I think we've got. You it. already know everything you need to know about him. Uh, well, Ivar's full name is Ivar Fetch Grimoire. He's um, an out of town lawman. He's from a different area. He's from uh, the Gallants region, so he's not originally from Embrace. Gallants is sort of like an area to the north, which is kind of very coastal and quite disparate in like how the communities are formed, I think. Yeah, so they they I've written here that they're frontiersmen, so they're they they used to be fishermen and they've moved on to pastures new and they've kind of become like that classic American cowboys almost, but they've started their started their own sort of hunt for a place to live, but Ivar's ended up back in Embrace. Okay. Um, most importantly, Ivar is playing the the ghost playbook. So he is a, a spirit without a body. I guess the question is, like, because I imagine ghosts in this world don't have to have died, but are you someone that has died and become a ghost? I don't think I want to go into how Ivar died right this moment, but yeah, I think Ivar, yeah, has died. Okay. And what does Ivar look like? Ivar, he's probably about five foot eleven, mm-hmm. neck length, brown hair, sort of like centre parted, uh, like really messy. <laughs> he's always wearing almost even like a a classic cowboy duster, just sort of coming down to around the knees. But other than that, seems well dressed, white shirt, trousers, that kind of thing, with some boots. Does he have a humanity? Yes, Ivar has a prehensile tail. Awesome, yes. So he has almost like a monkey's tail. So it's like, it's got short brown hair on it, matches his hair. But he keeps it tucked up inside his coat. It's not like always on show or like sticking out the end. But he can use it in the same way that you'd use like a hand, I guess, if it's prehensile? Yeah, to grab things, pick things up. Maybe use it for balance. Okay. And 
One of the things about ghosts in our world is they're not necessarily what we would think of ghosts in fiction in terms of they're not necessarily see-through and glowing bright blue or anything like that. Instead, ghosts or spirits in Rhine have a tell, which is something that shows that they're a ghost. It's something weird that gives you an idea of who they are. It's not necessarily showing at all times, but when a ghost manifests in a way that's kind of out of control, their tell might be showing. Did we want to go over what yours was now, or do we want to save that for when it comes up? No, I think it becomes quite obvious as soon as somebody starts looking at Ivar. Okay. So Ivar's tell is that his eyes aren't in his head anymore. Welcome to these flimsy rituals. <laughs> Somehow we found somebody worse than crab hands. <laughs> so Ivar's eyes are orbiting around his head floating around and almost in a sense that it helps him to look at things he's constantly like glancing around at things and they're like dying in different directions even when they're like not facing towards the front of his head are are there still only two of them i guess it depends i'm not sure what it depends on but (laughs) it just depends oh oh dear i'd like to think there's opportunity for more or less (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are they showing right now are you presenting as a ghost or no i think i i think that Ivor has control of it i feel like they're maybe under the brim of a hat or something like that but i think that Ivor's going to start fiddling in his jacket to act like he's pulling out a parking ticket <laughs> <laughs> okay do you want to go over what your stats are sure Ivor has three in hunt one in survey, one in finesse, one in prowl, one in skirmish, two in attune, and one in command. He's a dead eye. I guess the important thing to go over, actually, that we haven't, is that when you create a ghost in Blades in the Dark, you create what their former rulebook was first, and you went for the... Is it the hunter? Is that what that's called? Uh, the hound. The hound, yeah, which is sort of like a hunterish character. Which also has a pet. Should we go over your pet? Yes, let's. So Ivar has a pet who is still alive. So Ivar's pet is living. He has a bat that's more like a Labrador. Are we talking in look or in size? Both. Or personality? Or everything. I feel like it's, <laughs> all it's all of these things. So it's a, it's a dog-sized bat. I mean, I'm into it. I say, I, I, I actually love it, but that's not surprising. And uh, she's called Topaz. So yeah, she she helps him track things and find things. Is Topaz in this scene at the minute? or No, I don't think Topaz is here right now. Okay. And what abilities did you take? So I have two abilities. I have Ghost Form and Poltergeist. We've adapted these slightly to more match how spirits are in the world of Rhine. So I'll read out the ones that we've adapted. Ghost form. You are spirit untethered to a physical form. You may weakly interact with the physical world and vice versa. You're vulnerable to spirit magic and bismuth. You may move about through the strange geometry of the cut, moving swiftly without tiring. You may choose to pass through most physical matter. You have an aura around you and are strange to behold. So that was my strange eyes. Okay. You are affected by spirit bane charms, and I take two drain to overcome repulsion. Whenever you would take stress, take drain instead. 
when you would take trauma, take gloom. Okay. And poltergeist, which is take one drain to strongly interact with the physical world for a few moments as if you had a normal body. Extend the reach and magnitude of your interaction to include telekinetic force and spirit discharges by taking more drain. Two to six. Nice. So basically most of your traits at the minute are about being a ghost. That might change as we play. Yeah. But ghost form I think is interesting just because the way you take stress and things is slightly different to other people. And Poltergeist is interesting because it allows you to interact with the physical world in interesting ways. I guess we're kind of seeing how spirits work in this world is they sort of need to stay tethered to something. And yeah, that might be going back to the place that they grew up. It might be spending time with the family that they had. It might be like being around a specific person. What is your vice? What is your tether? So the thing that keeps Ivar anchored here is that he's the the sheriff of Tailend, which is the basically the ghost town of Embrace. So Ivar will always head back to Tailend to make sure that his people are safe and that nothing bad is happening there. Yeah, I'm kind of imagining this as both being around people, but also dealing with all of the the work and like the civics you need to keep on top of to keep that place going. Yeah, and it's all, I think, very new to Embrace, and I think even the the spirits living there are having a hard time adjusting to it. Yeah, and I guess we'll explore more of what that place is like once we once we get there. So, last two things, who is your friend and who is your rival? Uh, so, my rival is called Branch. They are a member of the Likelihood Lads, and they are sort of muscling in on the area around Tailend. Yeah, so like the likelihood lads are like a gang of young bookmakers, I guess. Uh, my friend is Trilvo. They are kind of like an older figure in Tailend. They're sort of one of the first spirits that seem to start congregating there, and um, kind of like a a parental figure to everyone else that sort of lives there. Okay. Someone that they can always give advice to Ivar and help them when they. Struggling with a dilemma sort of thing. So almost like helps foster people into it. Pretty much, yeah. So in this moment, you're walking up to, I guess, the person who's in charge and and asking where their like paperwork is, right? Well, not even that. I'm just telling them to get the cart moving and just say, um, you know, I'm going to give them a parking ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to like impersonate being a Swift then? Yeah, kind of, but it was more along the lines of I was going to do this, and I think he's just walking towards them, and then as he gets closer, just <laughs> just pulls back his coat and just pulls an uppercut out. Those uppercuts that you keep in your pocket. Yeah, I think um, as you get close, the the leader of this group turns and looks at you. They kind of have like quite a thin face that's sort of like purple and almost has like a downward point to it. And like flicks out a forked tongue. It's like, no. And then and then you punch them. Let's see how this goes. What's your goal? Is your goal to just start a fight? Well, I was gonna put a bit of poltergeist telekinetic force on it. Maybe knock him up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yes. What action are you using? Skirmish. Okay, so the position is going to be risky again because you're like 
engaging someone in a fight. And the effect level is going to be great because you're using your poltergeist move. Do you want to add any bonus dice before you roll? I'll whack a lad. <laughs> what, what does that look like? Excuse me? Where does Ezra come from? Where did where did uh, Ivar come from? I think it was just out of an alleyway. Yeah, I think Ezra is just going to slide out of the, the alleyway that Ivar came from. Actually, you know what? They're not they're not that chill. They don't slide out. They like full tilt run out of the alley when they see that Ivar is about to punch someone and just like thwack upwards with a with a wrench at the same time. Oh no, no, no. Even better. Get him in the gut. Go on. Get him in the gut. Tee him up for my my uppercut. Alright, yeah, I'll tee him up. Ezra and Ivar have practiced this a lot together alone. <laughs> this is like a move you've worked on. Yeah. This is a wrestling move. Okay. So you roll with two dice. I rolled a five. So on a five, uh, you do it, but there's a consequence. You suffer harm, a complication occurs, you have reduced effect, you end up in a desperate position. So yeah, I think you do it as you describe. You walk up to this guard. Ezra rushes in and hits them across the, their like chest with this wrench. I think it makes a big like clanging noise as it hits hits the metal armor beneath but they kind of stagger and you use that moment to punch them. How strong is this punch? Are they going up in the air? They are going into the sky. I want them to get some air. <laughs> I, I'm imagining maybe this is like narrow alleys and the buildings are kind of tall. And like we described, they're maybe partially wood, partially bone, partially this like flesh lever. And they maybe crunch into one of the walls and slide down. And then I'm going to put you in a desperate position, I think. The other two guards are on you before you can even turn around. One of the guards has drawn a spirit pistol and is pointing it at your head. Good, good. So one of the ways that uh, Blaze and Dark works, and one of the things we'll use, is it has clocks, which are ways to kind of track progress towards stuff. So I'm going to use that roll, because you rolled great, to mark off three segments of a clock, which is getting rid of the guards. And I think this is a four-step clock, so you only one away. I think I might see if I can help. Cool. How are you helping? Well, I have two ideas. One is just to try and move the animals, and thus the cart, away. Uh, the cart is clamped. Oh, it's clamped. Oh, of course it's clamped. Well, the other idea is just to blind everyone. But of course, <laughs> my people know that's a thing that I do, so they won't be blinded. Yeah, let's do that. And I guess what we can do to prep for that is you could do a flashback. So one of like the really great things about Blades in the Dark is when you're on a score, you can do a thing called a flashback, which allows you to go back in time and kind of set something up that wasn't otherwise set up. So in this case, the idea that the gang has prepared themselves to not be blinded. Setting up a code word for this or something. Yeah, yeah. Ziz, what, what do you think this is? Do people have goggles? Is there a code word? How have you set this up? I don't think any goggles are going to help me. <laughs> I think it's probably a, a code word. What's the code word? Everyone's favourite start to bingo. Eyes down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's actually not bad. Yeah. Okay, so flashbacks tend to come with a stress cost. This one is probably an ordinary action for which you had an easy opportunity. So this is going to be zero stress. So you just do it. So... What's this look like? What do we see as as the audience, as your character comes into view? 
Well, I think as my character comes into view, you just see partway down the alley a about head height, dull glow become brighter and brighter and brighter until you can't bear to look in that direction anymore. It doesn't last long. Once it gets up to its full brightness, the light fades. And do we see where it's coming from? Yes. It's coming from Nia Gorse. So Ziz, who is Nia Gorse? So Nia is a fashion designer just out of university. And say are also a performance artist trying to find their own unique art form. Sounds good. So I'll ask what brings them to this group of radicals in a minute, but for now, you use some custom pronouns there. Did you want to say more about those? Yes. So Nia's pronouns are say ser sem, and Nia has a humanity, like a lot of other people in Rhine, where gender is such a wildly different concept that it's recognized in a, for Nia, this set of pronouns. Okay. For Nia and for me, this is also about how these pronouns can encompass a wider set of gender presentations and a ability to be fluid through them. So I don't want to get too hung up on what the, say, CSM pronouns mean culturally. We'll exploit through play. But it's interesting what Nia uses those pronouns to mean. So you mentioned a little bit about Nia's humanity. Did you want to go over Sir Luck next? Yes. Nia is a sea slug. <laughs> a human sea slug, right? Well, yeah, yeah, no. So, so Nia, Nia's human, 100%, uh, just like most of the other people in Rhine, where they are human, but have a different humanity, that they're not different species. But Nia, say, are a human sea slug, and it's amazing. What, what does that mean in practice? How to say look? So the sea slug, say, most resemble is a lettuce leaf sea slug which is the sea slug, which is kind of a soft green that mm. radiates out to a, a pink and has Ooh. lots of beautiful ruffles. It's, it's, it's kind of like if you take a lettuce and then make it beautiful. That sounds incredible. So they have very soft, squidgy flesh. They're very... Um, just very soft, not not muscled. That's not quite how their body looks. And instead of hair, it's the beautiful ruffles that kind of gradiate from the warm green at the center to a, a light yellow and then a surprising pink at the end. The mm. very, very ridge of each of the ruffles. And is all of their skin similarly coloured? Yes. Just asking for the fan artists out there. Oh, please. I need some fan art. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've tried every pick crew I can find. I cannot make this work. And Sarah Fashion Designer. 
Yes. What are they wearing right now? So, Embrace is a city of great fashion and ridiculous fashion. Mm -hmm. So you have, I think we described it as kind of Italian Renaissance, but now the upper classes are all going for really simple colors and cuts. And Nia's kind of in the middle of that, rebelling against the ridiculousness of the opulence by destroying it and bleaching it and dyeing it black and over dyeing <laughs> and trying to take these beautiful cuts and cut them short or cut them long. Unfortunately for Nia, that's also the direction that the upper classes are going in, which is not what yeah. Neil wants to be going for. But the upper classes take their fashions <laughs> from the fashion designers. So I don't really know what Neo was expecting. Yeah, we, we've spoken a little bit about this off screen. And essentially, because of what we saw in the Atrium episodes where the dye worker factories got mechanized, the city has gone from a place where only the rich had access to like bright, colorful fabrics to a place where everyone now suddenly has access to a range of colors in their clothing. And the reaction to that for the upper classes in the, in the city is to go for a lot of like black and white so, sort of severe colours, but making up for that in some very incredibly detailed lace work, because that's something that is still expensive. And I imagine Nia's is a little bit different to that. Nia's yeah. is, is rougher, because Nia is specifically rebelling against their parents, who are upper middle mm. class, trying very hard to be upper class and haven't quite got the memo of this monochrome look. Cool. Yeah. So you mentioned your parents. Is this a good time to go over your heritage and background and what role book you're playing and all of that stuff? Sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. So Nia's role book is The Mirage from the Aruvian playbook. It's about being a master of illusions. Um, and mm -hmm. the only reason I picked this uh, <laughs> this role book was because of the the move like a star. And why is that move? It's you can push yourself to do one of the following: levitate or float through the air like a ghost, or produce mm -hmm. a light from nothing, either brilliant and blinding or dim and long lasting. Your choice. And part of being a sea slug for me was an idea of bioluminescence where Nia is actually able to glow. I love it. I, yes, yes. Yes. And so that, that's, that's pretty much <laughs> the only reason I <laughs> decided to use this. H hence the entrance, right? Oh, yes. And what's your other ability while we're on those? The other ability is like looking into a mirror which is where you can always tell when someone is lying to you. And this, I chose this one actually because my concept for Nia's parents was that one of them is part of the intellectual elite as a foremost psychoanalyst. Yeah, so your heritage is part of the upper middle class, yes. right? Yes, so Nia's family is from Acreage in Embrace. So there's... Trivnim Gors, which is the psychoanalyst, and there's Zedek Nimgors, who is a fashion journalist 
Yes. And I noticed that that Nia say just calls themselves Nia Goss, but their full surname is Nim Goss. Is that right? Yes. So part of Nia's parents trying to be part of the upper class is adding the... Actually, what is it called when you have a Nim or a Vaughn or a... What's that term for that uh, word? Is a Vaughn. Apparently, a Vaughn is a nobility participle. No, a, a nobility particle indicating a noble patrilineality. <laughs> wow, that's a mouthful. Um, do you want to describe Nim? Because you have that in front of you. It's a nobility particle. Okay, all right, I've, I've got it. So Nia's parents have added Nim, which in Embrace is a nobility particle. Yeah, yeah. It starts as a place of going like, hey, this is a way of saying I'm from this place, and then becomes a status indicator in Embrace. So Nia's parents have adopted this, and Nia has decided this is ridiculous and refuses. I also imagine it's good cover for when you're running with <laughs> radical groups. And that kind of ties into who some of their friends are. But before we get to that bit, what stats did you take for Nia? So I took one study, one survey, two in finesse, one in a tune, one in consort, and two in sway. So a nice range there. Yeah. A mix of being able to talk to people and do some weird stuff. Glow. A lot. <laughs> and I'm imagining the finesse is to do with your fashion designing? Yes. And performance art. And performance yes. art. Yeah, we, we haven't spoken about that. So sh should we talk about what your vice is? Oh, yes. So Nia's vice is performing in radical cafes, salons, and subversive theater. Amazing. And what does that performance look like? Posing with fancy fabric. Oh, I love it. So I'm, I'm sure we'll go places, but right now Nia's only gotten to the part where, say, pose and are wearing fancy fabrics. So standing in front of a group of radical theatergoers wearing fancy clothes and doing some posturing. Pretty much. I, I'm sort of imagining <laughs> Nia as being like a human, do you like those gold statues you get in like city centres? <laughs> Just one of those almost. We will see. Okay, and I think the last thing is, who are your friends and rivals? So Nia's friend is Elif, and she is a shopkeeper at the fabric store that Nia tends to go to. Okay. Initially, it was just like the most convenient uh, place to get all the good fabrics, and now Nia only goes there and refuses to get fabric anywhere else because... If they go to a different shop, Elif won't be there. And I think you've mentioned this before when you were when we were talking over your character. Elif is the person that got Nia into these sort of radical circles. Yes. So Nia has the biggest crush on her, and <laughs> kind of followed Elif around 
And if Elif mentioned going to like a particular set of performances or to a demonstration, Nia would always say yes. And it kind of, it kind of started as a just wanting to be near Elif, but I think Nia's Nia's now starting to become a radical on uh, completely on her own. Yeah. I think from what you've described of Nia, say, fairly radical, anyway, or at least like rebellious against yes. the way things are meant to be done. And I imagine having met Elif and having had like the university experience, I can see how, say, would start to fall in with those crowds and adopt those beliefs. And did you want to mention who your rival is? No. <laughs> I don't like some. <laughs> who, who are they? Durgin, the protege of Nia's fashion journalist parent. And what does Durgin do? This I actually love. Say are a slam poet. Do you say move in the same crowds as you? Do you say perform through like the radical performance network or, or is it? Durgin moves in both Nia's circles and their parents. So both a radical and trying to be, what, say, deem as better than that? Correct. And annoyingly, say are never lying. Because Nia would tell. <laughs> Is Durgin like the one person that Nia can't see through? I, I imagine, I mean, that's, that's kind of up for you to, to show at some point. But Nia, and I believe that Durgin is just honestly terrible. <laughs> and honestly believes they're both a radical and part of the upper class elites. I, I love this so much. And I think I love this the most because says such a good mirror to who Nia is as well. No, no, no. Nia, Nia, Nia's a radical. Completely. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> cool. So... What is Sai doing in this moment? Being really bright. Okay. I'm trying to work out if this is a role, what is, what is this? It's when I push myself. So yeah. how do I do that? Or do I do something else and this? I guess the question is, what are you trying to do? What, what are you trying to do with the light? I'm basically trying to create an opportunity. Uh, we've got... At least two of our crew, like two of the crew, are currently fighting and not winning. So I want to make it so their opponents cannot see, and they can. That makes sense. So yeah, you spend the stress for your move. Okay, take two stress. And then you choose what action rating you're rolling. So to me, this sounds like... Finesse, probably, which is all about showmanship and distraction, but you can choose something else as well. I'm just. No, that sounds about right. So I think this is desperate. I, I, yeah, I set this up as desperate. You did. You did. I did hear you say that. The gun is still pointed at Ivar's face. Do you want to use the push yourself for an extra dice or for uh, a better effect? You're rolling two dice at the minute, so you can make it three dice or you could have it so it does more. Uh 
let's make it a great effect. Let's let's make it like go big or go home. Yeah, it's only it's only Ivar that gets shot if you fail, right? Yeah, and I won't, right? Maybe. Think of my eyes. Do you want a devil's bargain before you roll? Oh yes, yes I do. <laughs> the umbral provenders who are, you know, waiting for this delivery, they will see this flash of light and will come to investigate. Fine. But what does that do? Does that mean things go great? Uh, you get to roll one more dice. Okay, cool. You say fine, but if they find out I was involved, I'm probably going to be but grounded. But you, like, so ran off... I, I just, I just want, I just want you to be aware of that. That was better. Ooh. Nice. So that's a five. So on a desperate, you do it, but there's a consequence. You suffer severe harm, a serious complication occurs, you have reduced effect. Um, so you do it, first of all. And on a great effect, that's going to tick up this clock and means you've dealt with this problem. So I think you managed to blind the guards. The light coming from Nia is bright and brilliant. But also they fire off a shot wildly. And I think it's going to hit Nia in Sir's arm, I think. And because this is a spirit gun, it doesn't hit you in like a physical wound, but instead will hurt your spirit. That sounds really unpleasant. I think what happens, I think the way this looks is we see Nia dull. You're going to take the level two harm dulled. However, the other thing you can do in Blades and Dark is you can you can resist consequences. So anytime I give you a complication or harm or a consequence, you can choose to resist it. And what that means is you roll in one of your three resistances. They are insight, prowess, and resolve. This would probably be prowess. And you roll that number of dice in the first column, and you take your highest dice away from six stress. So basically, that's how much stress you take, and you automatically resist the consequence or knock it down to a lower level. So if you wanted to resist the consequence and not get wounded, you could do that. Let's try. Let's let's resist the consequences. I'm sure this will be fine. I have one die to roll. Let's see how it goes. Yes! Six! Nice. Oh. So you take no stress and you resist it. Because this is the first score, I'm just going to totally wipe that out. What does this look like? What does this resistance look like? You said the shot was going for uh, Sarah's arm? Yes. I kind of imagine it as they were going to shoot Ivar, the guard, but as soon as like this bright light flashes, they like spin and just unleash a wild shot in your direction before clutching at their eyes. I'm thinking. Yeah, we'll go with clothes. Because there's a whole kind of like structured bit and then drapey bit. Like tries to play with various structures a lot in clothing. Yes. Maybe uses a lot of the bone or the tanned flesh leather as bracing inside the clothes to make them stand up the way they're meant to. So is it like it hits a part that isn't actually Nia? Yeah, it hits a bit that's not actually Nia and is actually just some flesh leather under some very, very cheap fabric. Cool. So yeah, the two guards are stumbling round blinded. And I think it gives the rest of you opportunity to act. What are you doing? How does this scene wrap up? I think we should get the weapon out of here. <laughs> yeah, I think I would like to try and use the wrench I sucker punched that dude with to 
crack this cart open. Nice. Are you just doing this while the guards are stumbling around, or do you see them off? I am fully confident that Ivar can deal with them. Yeah, I feel like Ivar's probably drawn a pistol now and is firing at them to get them to flee the cart. I guess the question is, like, are you killing them, or are you just driving them off? I'm driving them off. I'm not not killing them. Just, like, rattling your chains and shouting woo at them. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> shooting, the f- <laughs> shooting the floor and going, dance, boys, dance! <laughs> there we go. There it is. I would lay my life down for Ivar already. Too late. He's already dead. <laughs> sake. Yes, I think these two guards stumble away back into the night, you shouting and firing after them. They kind of stumble blindly through some alleys. Uh, they probably trip over a couple of things along the way. They seem quite eager, it strikes you, to like give up this this package. They've, they've not fought particularly hard, considering the reputation of the Jackal's troops. With them gone, it gives Ezra the chance to investigate this cart. You cracking it open with a crowbar? I think I only have a wrench, but I'm going to use it like a crowbar. Use the sharp end. Yeah, I'll use the sharp end. So I'm kind of imagining this wagon almost like as if someone had a cart and then sealed it over the top. So you're prying away wood that has been nailed, and it makes like a huge creaking noise as you do it. And inside the wagon, you can see there's a casket, this sort of tanned leather over wood, peeling at the edges, and embossed in the leather are the imprints of the jackal's crest, a sword piercing a labyrinthine heart. I'm going to open the casket. Is this everyone gathered round in this scene? Has Ash, have you managed to lose the guard that was chasing you? I think Ash jogs around a corner, patting his his smoking hands down on his, on his sort of dirty leather jerkin. Um. Okay. I. Uh. I think I lost him. But. Uh. I heard some. I heard some people coming. I think. I think the umbrals might be on the way. We need to. We need to get. What's in there? What is it? I think. Ivar is stood next to the cart, and he's still shooting his gun off in the distance. But one eye is rotated back around the back of his head, looking into the cart. <laughs> oh yes. Mia's definitely gathering to see what's going on. Okay. Ezra opens the lid. I think, unlike the last time, it's not like prying wood away. I think there's a clasp on one of the sides. Chains shut and locked. The chains fall with a clank as you cut it open. And then you're lifting open the lid? Still opening the casket, yes. <laughs> you You open the casket. And this is the casket that your contact, Nilcat, your friend, Nilcat, told you was going to be weapons. But there's not any weapons inside. Beck, who is Oaken? Oaken. 